In 2016, the CIA released previously classified guidelines for medical practice in its secure detention centres. The information reveals worrying insights into the role of doctors in interrogation activities at these centres. This has been explored further in a new analysis on bmj.com. I'm Navjoit Lada, Analysis Editor, and I'm joined now by Zachary Berger, Associate Professor of General Internal Medicine and Bioethics at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, and one of the authors of the article. Zach, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. How did you come to write on this topic? The, the opportunity to write on this topic came about through this wonderful collaboration. Um, you know, Matt DeCamp, the senior author on this piece, has expertise in global health ac- ethics and um, clinical ethics in general. And Len Rubenstein uh, is an attorney and an expert on the facts of the matter regarding these CIA black sites and torture at these sites. So it's um, the the expertise of these co-authors which made this piece possible. Just to start with, can you talk us through um, what what did we know before these guidelines were... uh, were declassified and more information was revealed. What did we know about the role of doctors in these centers? They, we do know that, that health professionals, including doctors and psychologists, were meant to medically supervise torture so that the victims would be healthy enough to continue to participate in the so-called advanced interrogation. So they were, they, we knew that they were participating in the process and making sure that the people in, that the, uh, the the victims of torture were well enough to continue with the process. Okay, so there was already a sort of slightly worrying aspect of, of how involved these clinicians were, but what exactly did the release of these previously classified guidelines in 2016 tell us more about? What it told us about is, obviously, there's ethical consensus that doctors and other health professionals should not be involved in carrying out torture or facilitating torture activities. But until now, we weren't aware to what extent the milieu of torture and health professionals' involvement in torture impacted on so-called routine clinical care. Um, routine is probably not a great word because we're talking about prisoners um, who were being tortured. But for lack of a better word, we're talking about the effect of these medical orders on what doctors were able to or permitted to provide as part of their routine care of patients. And so it's, it's really not about doctors facilitating torture, it's about the very basic professional regard and compassion and care for patients by physicians being degraded by their participation in the torture milieu. And just to to talk bit, a bit more about that torture milieu, um, taking a step back, can you tell us a, a bit more about um, about these um, sort of secret detention centres? I mean, I'm sure people will have heard of the sort of high profile examples like Guantanamo Bay, but um, who who sort of who would be who would be there? Who would be detained there? And and what kind of practices or enhanced interrogation activities would be going on? Sure. So, so um, you know, I, I actually can't pretend to be an expert on the black sites themselves. That would be my, my, my co-author, uh, Len Rubenstein. But I will say that it is known that det- um, among those detained were those suspected of terrorist activities. Um, in some cases, these were innocent people that were detained. In some cases, these were people who were suspected of activities 
and there were a variety of so-called enhanced interrogation or torture means used on these people, um, ranging from sleep deprivation, um, bright lights, uh, waterboarding, um, physical mistreatment. So these were these were activities that have been known for some time. Um, I think n- newly known are the ways in which doctors and psychologists had their basic clinical care perverted in, in the service of these torture means. Can you talk us through some of those means, um, distressing as they are? You know, what, what, what we discovered, what we wrote about is how, from the start, the ordinary care that physicians would be expected to provide to a patient were irreparably or significantly infringed by these medical directives. Um, the time given to exam was limited. Um, interestingly enough, it, was, it states explicitly in these medical guidelines that the exam should only be done in English, which, um, which raises all sorts of questions which, were not, which we were not uh, able to really tease out from the available materials. Um, it was also directed that physicians not be able to pro- not be able to provide timed medications or medications given on a certain schedule because this might limit the disorientation that was desired in the in in using in using torture against these detainees. Um, further, there were specific procedures which are not medically indicated at all that were part of of the, uh, med- the so-called medical treatment in these circumstances, for example, rectal feeding, which is not a medically acceptable, um, which is not a medically acceptable procedure, but was part of these these guidelines. Do we have any idea of? I mean, this is all information that's in the guidelines. Do we have any idea of of what actually happened in practice? I guess that is still classified. Yeah, we don't we don't know from these guidelines what doctors actually did, um, as we detailed in the analysis. We, from an instance which was made public before the release of these guidelines, we do know then that at least one case, doctors participated in substandard wound care for one detainee and, in fact, were told not to provide standard of, of care with regard to that wound and were told to direct the patient to take care of their own wound. We don't know um, what fraction of doctors participated, whether anyone refused to go along with these guidelines, so, so we can't we can't speak to that. Um, what I can say, and I think what we all know, is that, and from not not just from political realities, but also from social psychological research, is that people respond to incentives and people respond to control. So, physicians um, participating in this environment would have been likely to cooperate. Unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, even if even just the guidelines themselves suggest um, a sort of a degree of complicity, and certainly those actions that that we do know about do as well. Um, and what you what you're saying in the analysis is that um, explaining why you think these um, represent a sort of an ethical boundary that's been tran- transgressed. Perhaps you can talk us talk us through that. Sure. You know, I think. There are, as, as we point out in the analysis, there are many ways in which care of patients is, through one reason, for one reason or another, um, not complete or subject to constraints. 
in the typical U.S. healthcare system that I'm most familiar with, unfortunately, there are many constraints um, due to social economic inequalities and other reasons. However, usually, or at least ethically, we consider these constraints not to be a priori, but things that we are trying to mitigate in the care of an individual patient. I think what's different in what we wrote about is that the atmosphere of control and mistreatment of these detainees lent itself to a perversion of normal care on the part of physicians. And this is what was explicitly written about, that these constraints were seen as an a priori. Um, and they were not written about in, even in a apologetic or justificatory terms. They were written about as part and parcel of these physicians' employment and, com and com complicity with the torture means and ends. And that's a, that's a step farther than what we knew, and that's the novel piece of this analysis. And unfortunately, I think this concession to control has something in common with the way that many U.S. physicians are complicit in our unequal health care system. Obviously, it's a bridge farther and a step farther, um, and I'm not likening health inequalities in our system to torture, but there are ways in which many physicians um, participate in, in equal care that we need to think about. Now, one topic that I'm not expert on and that we didn't write about in this analysis but definitely comes to mind is that there are physicians trying to give the best care they can every day to patients in our uh, legal system, in our correctional, in our so-called correctional system. And there are a number of constraints placed on care of patients in that system. And to what extent are physicians who work in that system trying to provide the best care they can for those patients? And to what extent are they complicit in a deeply unjust system is a very difficult question. I think once torture is the system in question, that's much clearer ethically, obviously. But constraints on care is something that impacts physicians in many different systems. Mm. And I guess one, um, someone working in one of those settings, so for example, like in a correctional facility, they might say that actually by, by being present and trying to do their best in that situation, they're perhaps preventing further harm or trying to instigate change from within within that setting but from yes in fact in fact and, and similar circumstances have, and similar arguments have been made about the torture setting um, in fact there was a a a piece in um, in the Hastings uh, Center ethical journal um, making the argument that physicians in the torture milieu can improve or can provide care for patients that are ordinarily or otherwise not be possible. I think our analysis helps rebut that. If ordinary care could not be provided because of these medical guidelines, it seems a very heavy lift to argue that physician complicity improved anything for these detainees. Mm. Um, and you, you talk about in the article about sort of this concept of dual loyalty for um physicians who work within, say, military settings, or in this case, the um, 
CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency, as their sort of employer, and they may feel conflicted by um, sort of conflicting codes of conduct or ethical guidelines or practices that happen within both of those um, spheres. Um, how how do you think that has played out within within this particular example of of um, torture? I think I think in this case the dual loyalty one could say is sort of shrunk to a single point of single loyalty to the aims of the CIA and the and the aim of torture. It doesn't seem like physician these physician guidelines acknowledge well they I'm sorry, they they do actually as we say in the analysis, they do a priori give lip service to a kind of standard of clinical care. However, that lip service is undermined by the actual text of these directives. So this dual loyalty is is quite reduced to maybe a loyalty and a half, so to speak, or a mm. single loyalty. But there are, um, there is actually um, statements about medical participation in torture. You mentioned the World Medical Association's Declaration of Tokyo. Um, are the is this are these guidelines sort of in conflict with with what's in the Declaration of Tokyo? Perhaps you can talk us through what that says. Well, we're, we're what we say in the analysis is that there are very clear guidelines that prohibit physician, the participation of physicians and other health professionals' uh, participation in torture itself. Um, and and, and uh, complicit, and uh, talking about that physicians should not be complicit in torture, what's said less in these guidelines is the constraints placed on so-called normal clinical care in this circumstance. And what's said less and what we recommend is further sanctions against physicians who participate in, in this setting. Um, and one of the things in the Declaration of Tokyo is that is an encouragement for um, physicians to report, speak out and protect um, detainees. To your knowledge, has that happened um, with any of the uh, detention centres in the US at all? Are you aware of any physicians who've spoken out about the conditions there? That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. I would hope so. Um, and I, um, after we, we finish this conversation, I'm going to go look, but I, I, I don't know the answer. I imagine they're probably under very, very strict kind of um, uh, non-disclosure agreements and that sort of thing. But it's probably no longer yeah. in position, right? <laughs> yeah. spoken out ex post facto, but I, I actually don't know the answer to that. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, one of the things that um, sort of throws your analysis into quite sort of sharp relief is um, the current administration and some of what uh, some of the sort of statements about torture practices um, and these detention centres. As far as you know, where do where do things stand on that front? Right. Well, um, in this administration, you could say that no one really knows right now. But given the overall unethical and racist practices of the administration, one can be very concerned about renewed um, use of torture. Um, you know, there have been various quoted public statements about conversations between um, Trump and his chief of staff and the Secretary of Defense about whether torture is or is not permissible. And he might have said something negative. Trump might have said something negatively disposed about torture one time or another. Um, but that is very thin gruel, or it's a thin reed to support oneself on if one wants to think that torture will be will remain impermissible. 
um, in U.S. practices. There are other kinds of torture going on. You know, we know that um, the, um, the ICE, the, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Service, has increased detentions and in, has contracted with private prison services, which have been putting detainees in detention for refusing so-called voluntary work programs. So the erosion of norms uh, might begin to affect again or continue to affect treatment by detainees of the um, treatment of, C, of detainees by the CIA. I don't you know I'm not privy to such information, but um, you know we we live in shocking and worrisome times. So so hopefully pointing out the needed role of health professionals in being an ethical bulwark will help us maintain some sort of moral orientation. That's a very um, strong point to, to finish on there. I think a good, a good reminder for the role that we all have individually to play all physicians. Um, Zach Berger, thanks so much um, for joining us today. And that article, Clinical Care and Complicity with Torture, is now available on bmj.com. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. There you'll find our back catalogue of hundreds of episodes, all available for free. I'm Navjot Larder. Thanks for listening.